0: Well, good morning. Thank you for having me. My name is Reagan Marsh, and I, I'm glad to be back in South Georgia. I pastored in Albany for about four years, and uh, I have to say I don't miss the gnats, oh. but I'm glad to be in North Georgia where there are four seasons. So I love it. I'm delighted to be with you. If you'll open your Bibles with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 9. The New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 9 is our text. We've titled the sermon this morning, The Four Last Things. Hebrews 9 is our text. I don't know what y'all's custom is uh, down here, but in North Georgia we stand for the reading of God's word. Is that okay if we do that this morning? Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to begin reading in verse 11. This is what the Holy Spirit says. This is the Word of God. Let us hear the voice of our King. The Bible says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant for where a will is involved the death of the one who made it must be established for will only takes effect uh, for a will takes effect only at death since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. As the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of God. Amen? Amen. 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 Thanks be to God. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Will you add now your grace, your blessing, to its hearing and its preaching? Give me grace, Lord, to understand your word to make it known. Spirit, take from what is Christ and make it known unto us. That is your office. That is your glory. We pray this for the praise of the name of the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 You may be seated. So I've been pastoring for a while now, and the question that people always ask is, when are you going to preach revelation? You get weird questions from time to time. I had a guy who asked me one time, you're not doing anything this week, are you? And I was like, well, not sure how to answer that. He said, because I'd like to bring my dog by and have you baptize him. I was like, no. Uh, <laughs> I'm doing more than, the, than I will make time for that. Um, but people, you know, they'll, they'll, I, had, I had a fellow ask me one time, why do you wear a beard? Our last pastor said all godly men are clean shaven. It's good to know, right, John? Yeah. <laughs> I, thought, I thought if you're a Reformed man, you're required to wear a beard. I read that somewhere. I don't know. But the question they always ask is, when are you going to preach on Revelation? When are you going to preach on Revelation on end times things? One of our elders likes to joke that when you, you come to the, the book of Revelation, when you come to the last things, and everybody always wants to talk about the millennium, it's the thousand years of peace that Christians love to fight about. And when, when people begin to ask these sorts of questions, normal pastors will look, and we kind of we listen. It's not that we're unwilling to answer the question or unwilling to deal with the text, But usually there's something driving it, and and being a bit of a smart aleck, I'm kind of under my breath going, you know, helicopters, blood moons in Israel, oh my. And and you you just, that's probably not a very sanctified thing to say in the pulpit, is it? But y'all, when you begin to realize that some 25 to 30% of the scriptures concern eschatology, concern the last things you begin to realize if if I don't have at least some sort of a lens by which to approach these things, then I am missing out on a huge chunk of the Scriptures. There's a massive portion of the Scriptures that will simply be closed to me. We might say it this way. If there is no place in your theology for Christ's return, Unto final judgment and final redemption, then you have no true gospel. We say that in the creed. I don't know if you guys are, uh, if y'all if y'all do much with the Apostles' Creed. The first two and a half years that Reformation was meeting, we we recited the Apostles' Creed every Lord's Day morning. We're, we're now teaching our people the Nicene Creed, and so they're they're reciting that up in Dalton this morning. But think about this: we affirm this in the creed. Jesus sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. What are those things? Those are things that are dealing with the last things. The main things of the last things, admittedly, but the last things. There's much that we can know, there's much we cannot, and there's much love and grace we've got to show because there are parts of this that are just simply hard to understand. We're dealing this morning with the four last things. I read a, a big chunk of Hebrews 9, but we're thinking primarily at the end of it. If you look at the beginning, at the end, sorry, of verse 26. But as it is, he, this being Jesus, has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's speaking of the incarnation and the crucifixion of Christ's appearing, his coming, his humbling himself, being found in the likeness of man, being born of the Virgin Mary, and then not only living a sinless life, that active obedience that that he's obeyed in our place, tempted in all points, just as we are yet without sin. No hope without that, right? But obedience unto death, even the death of the cross he's appeared at the end of the ages when is the end of the age anytime since jesus died to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment so christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. you got the four last things there. Four last things. Death, judgment, hell, heaven. Puritans often spoke of this. Our confession speaks of this because the scripture speaks of this. Hebrews is a book that is written, and and lest we think that this is just some... some, uh, you know, nice thing for, for pastors or theologians or, or the, the more egg-headed among us, to you know, guys with pocket protectors who, who like to read a lot of books and, and who, who major on footnotes, okay? Lest we think that it's, this is something reserved for them, understand that whoever, I think it was Paul that wrote Hebrews, but whoever, you know, you're welcome to disagree with me. That's fine. You can be wrong. Um, <laughs> that's an ongoing joke at our church. I'll just leave it there. Uh, <laughs> Lest we think that this is merely something academic, merely something that is splitting hairs, merely something that is kind of out there and distant from us, Hebrews is being written to a group of Christians who are tempted towards two things primarily. They are tempted to see other things, to see whether it be the sacrifices or the priesthood or Old Testament tradition or the tabernacle or the temple or Moses or Aaron. They're tempted to see other things as better than Jesus. And they are tempted to turn back from following Jesus when it begins to cost them something. One of the things when you read forward in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 12, the the writer says, in your struggle against sin, you haven't yet persisted, you're not yet endured until the shedding of blood. You haven't yet hit how hot it's going to get. You haven't yet hit the pain that it's going to cost you to follow Jesus. And the question then becomes, how do you walk through such days? How do you walk through such days when it looks like everything is falling apart? When it looks like like the country is not doing as it should and the churches are cold and lifeless and professing Christians don't seem to know God and nobody seems to care. And worse, when like we've seen in Canada in recent days, when knowing Christ and confessing Christ and gathering in the name of Christ is a hate crime. How do you persist? Paul or whoever it is says, you do it by having sight of who Jesus is. That is the only thing that will sustain the people of God. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. We sing that, don't we? When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my help and stay. That's precisely what's in view here. When you come to the four last things, it's not just a a, a discussion for academics. It is practical, boots on the ground, tennis shoes walking around, day-to-day theology for the people of God. It matters. Brothers and sisters, we must prepare to meet our God. We must know our King so there are these four last things in brief compass in verses 27 and 28. Look at it with me. We see death, just as it is, verse 27, it is appointed for man to die once. We see judgment, after that comes judgment. We see hell. So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many. How's that hell? because that's the closest that a saint will ever know. Jesus bore hell for you. The fury of God, the unmitigated, unmediated, unyielding fury of a holy God towards the wrath of his people was poured out on Christ at the cross for you. He bears the sins of many. If you do not have an interest in Christ... If you do not know Christ, if you have not come to Christ and closed with Christ, if He is not your life, (coughs) you have a picture of what awaits—the expectation of eternal hell that is unceasing. But then the saints' portion. So Christ, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many, here's heaven. He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin. In other words, not to die again, not to take away. Sin. He, he finished that work, right? What was the last thing Jesus said? It is finished. And with a loud cry, he yielded up his spirit. He gave up the ghost, literally. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So I want to think with you about these four last things. In verse 27, you got really kind of the appointment, and it's afterwards before the judgment seat of God in Christ Jesus. In verse 28, you get the agony in the second advent unto redemption in Christ Jesus. So let's think about these things together. One, we think about death. We think about death. It, it is the curse of our sin. It is appointed for men to die once. This is sin's consequence, isn't it? This is is what our catechism teaches us. The covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell in him in his first transgression. The covenant of works as we often speak of it. What is that? It's where don't eat the forbidden fruit. There's one law. There's one rule. And what do we do? We do it. And a lot of times we want to look and we say, well, if it was me, I wouldn't have. Yes, you would. Yes, you would. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. I read that somewhere. Sin's consequence. The wages of sin is death. It is an all-inclusive reach. And it brought all-inclusive death. There's biblical inclusivity. Such that 1 Corinthians 15 will tell us, in Adam all die. In Adam all die. Romans 5. Read that this afternoon. Romans 5, if you want to see how that works, there's there's the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam who brings death and the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, who alone can bring life. Death is the consequence of our sin. It's the nature of the curse. It's appointed unto men once to die. King Jesus, brothers and sisters, look at this for a moment. It is appointed for men to die once. Jesus is sovereign over the days of our lives. He is sovereign over the details of our death. He is sovereign over the duration of the pain we face and the things that we walk through in this life. It is appointed. This is not merely that God says, you're going to die at some point unbeknownst to me. That's when much of evangelicalism holds. Scripture speaks and says in God's hand is the life and the breath of every living thing. It is appointed. You have an appointment. Some of you are, are have the spiritual gift of tardiness. I know that because my, my family struggles with that. My church, I told Brother Thomas, we, we are supposed to start worship at 1030 and normally it's 1030-ish. You know, what's well, it? Like closer to 1040 or so. Spiritual gift of tardiness. And, and I'm not throwing rocks. I'm just, I'm being silly. But this is an appointment you won't be late for. This is an appointment you won't break. It is appointed unto men once to die. The Lord knows because the Lord has fixed that day, that moment, that way. And you notice that the nature of death here is a frightening thing. It's intended it's intended to let you feel because what the what the writer is doing in Hebrews nine what the what the whoever he is is doing in Hebrews nine is he is showing by way of contrast he's showing there's there's the the copies of the heavenly things I've been preaching through the Book of Exodus and, at Reformation and. One of the things, as, we, as we, we're in the moral law right now in chapter 20, but as soon as we get past that, you begin to get into the chapters where uh, Moses receives the instructions about how to make the things that, that are the details of the tabernacle, the things that will govern and, and, and uh, accentuate Israel's worship. And one of the instructions that the Lord gives very specifically there is see to it that you make things, everything exactly according to the pattern. Why? Well, the New Testament picks it up in several places and says because they're copies of the heavenly things. The, thing, the point is not to reproduce a little bit of heaven on earth so much as it is to say there is something that sets God apart, something that sets the people of God apart, something that when we come into His presence, gathered in His name for His worship, there's a tangible distinction. And it's right that we would fear. fear that the saint has, that is that of a father, is a holy fear. It's a holy reverence. It's a regard. You think about when your dad was angry, and rightfully so, you knew you had done something wrong, and he wasn't overreacting. He just, he was upset about it. What did he do? There's there's a right, you know what, I've wronged dad here. I've I've done something wrong here and I've got it coming to me, whatever it is. For the one who doesn't know Christ, to consider that it is appointed for man to die once and after that to face judgment is a terrifying thing. You know this is true. You've been to funerals. I've done close to 100 funerals in, in the, the time that God's graced me to care for souls. And at every funeral, there's at least one person who cannot bring themselves to say the word dead or death. Why? Because they're terrified. They're terrified. They, 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 they brush it off usually saying, I'm just emotional, I'm just emotional. No, you're afraid. Because invariably, what you have is someone who is not closed with Christ. Someone who is still at war with God. The sinner's fear marks him. There is a note of terror here. But Christ's victory is here as well. Because death for the saint is swallowed up in victory. God raised him up. God loosed the pains of death. Acts 2, this is the apostles preaching. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by it. Christ's victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? And the result of that, why why are we talking about that? Because for the Christian, for the Christian, our experience then is to look and say, okay, I will die. I will die. Martin Luther said it really well. I keep two days on my calendar. This day, because I, I don't know, I don't know if I'll finish it. And that day. The day of my death, the day that I meet God, the day that I stand before him. Everything else is just kind of details. But for the Christian, listen, when we have something like this, a text like this, it's appointed unto men once to die, and after that to face judgment. There's, there's part of you that, that it unnerves you, and there's part of you that you look and you say, that's the day I see my king. That's the day I go home. Paul would look, in 1 Corinthians 3, and you remember, the, you remember the context where the people at Corinth were boasting. And they were saying, well, I'm of, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Cephas. Well, I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm of Christ. They are picking and, and choosing sides based on either theological emphases that they liked or whoever it was who had led them to the Lord. And Paul looks at them and he says, enough of this. One, that's foolishness and it's, it's wrong. But two, everything is yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Christ or life or death. There's a reason that for me to live as Christ and to die as gain has been the hope of thousands of saints on their deathbed. Because Jesus has walked through it and Jesus has sanctified it to us. And so for the saint... We look and we say, there will be a dying day, and it will be a gaining day. But we learn to plead with people, to weigh out their days and to see their king. (coughs) Death is the result of sin's curse. It's given by Jesus. It's tasted by Jesus. It is defeated by Jesus. I may ultimately live a troubled life, but I have peace with God through my Lord Jesus Christ. And that is something that no illness, no circumstance, no grave can ever take from me because it is sealed in the blood of the cross. Thanks be to God. There's a second piece of this. Look at the text again, verse 27. Just as it is. Appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. There's judgment. Now again, we don't like to think about this. Listen to how the the catechism describes this. This is question 42 and 43. But what shall be done to the wicked at their death? The answer? The souls of the wicked shall, at their death, be cast into the torments of hell. Their bodies lie in their graves till the resurrection and judgment of the great day. And so then the catechism says, so what shall be done to the wicked at the day of judgment? All right, if that's, if that's the day of their death, how, how do we get, let's move it forward. What about the day of judgment? At the day of judgment, the bodies of the wicked being raised out of their graves shall be sentenced together with their souls to unspeakable torments with the devil and his angels forever. Brothers and sisters, it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. Let that sink into your soul. If you are here today and you do not know Jesus, the expectation is that you will stand before him, the one who is holy, holy, holy. You will stand before this king. That the, the scripture gives a picture of him in Revelation 1. When John sees Christ, the risen Christ, the same Jesus that you will stand before, he describes him in such a way, with such brilliance, with such radiance, with such purity, with such searching knowledge. He describes him in such a way that he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You think about Isaiah 6. The picture that, that Isaiah gives of the vision of the exalted Christ. Christ, he, he has a, a, a vision of Christ in his session, Christ seated on the throne. And you know the, you know the account, don't you? Where the, the seraphim were flying. Day and night, they got six wings, right? They're covering their their faces because he's too holy to look on. They're covering their feet because they're creatures. And day and night, they never cease to cry out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. And what happens? At the sound of their praise, the temple shakes. And Isaiah, in the, the presence of this king, He is literally coming unglued. There is no other way to describe it. He says, woe is me! I am undone! I have seen the Lord! He comes apart! We would call it a psychotic break today. He is losing it! And this is a saint! This is one who knows, this is a prophet for crying out loud! It's a preacher. He says, I've seen the Lord. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm dead. Judgment. If this, hear me, if this is the saint's experience, just in vision form, What will it be for you if you do not know Jesus as your king? There is nowhere that you can hide. Did you catch the the picture when when we read from Revelation 20 earlier? There was nowhere that they could go. The earth is not only full of the glory of God, but God himself fills heaven with. There is not a thought that we can have. There is not a word that we can say. There's not a a glance we can steal. There's not a... a, 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 You pick your sin of choice. There's nothing that escapes his gaze. We will stand and give account of ourselves to God. The unbeliever's terror on that day, it's going to be a day of groaning Romans 2 describes it as the day that God judges the secrets of men. Ecclesiastes 3 says, you know it's true. Why? Because he has set eternity in the hearts of men. The unbelievers experience, I, the Lord, Jeremiah 17, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Romans 2, God will render to each one according to his works. Proverbs 16, God has made even the wicked for the day of judgment. Jonathan Edwards asked the question, why would God make wicked men? If this is the case, why would God not just make us as a people to love him and and glorify him. And he said, wicked men are useful. The title of his sermon was the answer to the question. Wicked men are useful. Here's here's why God made them in their destruction. Now that sounds really hard. But understand, it will not only be a day, brothers and sisters, where you are, if you do not know Christ, where you are subject to, To groaning and terror. It will be a day where Jesus is glorified as the Holy One. It will be a day where His absolute, unspotted righteousness is vindicated in His dealing with those who have not fled to Him for refuge. It is a day of judgment and holy vengeance. As scripture said to the rich man in torment, you had good things in this life, brothers and sisters. If your best life is now, there is hell to pay later. I don't know another way to say it than that. But at the day of judgment, there will be also grace. Grace. Because when you've seen something so heavy as this, you understand that there will be Christ's reward. Isaiah 53, the the language that is used in verse 28, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, it's drawn directly from Isaiah 53, that he bore the sins of many. The scripture tells us in Isaiah 53, 10 and 11, he shall, after the suffering of his soul, after the travail of his soul, just the agony, literally, of his soul, he shall see the light of life and be satisfied and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, justify the many. You see a picture of resurrection. He shall see the light of life and be satisfied. You see the picture of an eternal kingdom, an eternal rule. He shall prolong his days. You see the picture of many sons being brought to glory, of grace for those for whom he died, of grace for those who have fled to Christ. He shall see his offspring. It's because he bore the guilt of many. So when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, it's because He is the one to whom all judgment has been entrusted. He is the one to whom the Father uh, has—sorry, uh, the one whom the Father has sent to be Second you know, Thessalonians one. Y'all, y'all were reading Second Thessalonians, so you'll recognize this. When Jesus returns, part of the judgment is that He is glorified in His saints and marvelled at among all those who believe. Why? Why does that deal with judgment? Because we look in that moment and we say, this is who he is. And that over there is what I would have faced if he had not borne it for me. And in that moment, to you who believe, he is precious. Death and judgment, brothers and sisters, are these things. The believer will not pass into judgment. Jesus was judged for you. Scripture tells us the punishment, that is the judgment, for our peace was upon him. And by his wounds we have been healed. We all like sheep were going astray. Each of us have turned to our own ways and the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The believer's joy is that on that day of judgment, look at this, You will account to God, but you will not be judged by God. Look at the the way this works. Just as it's appointed for men to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin. The saints experience. While, the, while those who do not know Christ, it is a day of terror, weeping, gnashing of teeth, wailing. It is the worst day in all of eternity, bar none, and it only grows. For the saint, we look and we say, Jesus has dealt with my sin and Jesus is not coming back to deal with my sin again. He has covered it past, present, future. I have been fully forgiven. He is fully atoned for my sin with his precious blood. I will see him as he is. I will see him in the radiance, the fullness of his glory, and I will have joy. He comes to be glorified in his saints, and marvelled at among those who have believed. He welcomes you, Jude 1 tells us, into his presence with great joy. And the things that we have done, I think this is one of the most precious things in the world to remember as we think about this text. The things that we have done to seek to honor him, we understand, don't we, that the We are people with mixed motives on a good day, right? On a good day. Don't sit there and look spiritual at me. You know it's true. (laughs) You know it's true. The Bible tells us God is not unjust. He will not forget the work that you have done or the love you have shown to saints in his name. At the day of judgment, when the righteous are acquitted, We are declared not guilty. We are are declared to be forgiven. We are declared and and known as the sons of God. On that day of judgment, reward is there, not because of our merits, but because of Christ. You say, no, the the text just said, you just quoted us, that God is not unjust. He won't forget your works. That's right. Why? Because truly, O Lord, you have done all our works in us. It is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, which he prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters, we're not puppets on a string, but we're walking out what God's planned. And God loves his own handiwork and his people. The saint's experience at the day of judgment is being found in Christ and our righteousness in Christ and our sufficiency in Christ and our standing in Christ and our surety in Christ and our reward in Christ and everything so that we say with Paul in Colossians 3, Christ is my life. That's why he ends here. He appears not to deal with sin but to save those who eagerly wait for him. That's lovely. That's lovely. We've, we've forgotten how to sing over that. A third piece of this. I thought about death and judgment. Real upper this morning, right? Hell. Hell is the sinner's eternity. If we've seen Jesus... As the judge, Jesus here is seen as the executioner, if we can put it like that. Listen to the text again. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, it's an important word, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Hell is the sinner's eternity. Our catechism, again, says it this way. This is question... Um, well, I read that one a moment ago, didn't I? I'm sorry. We already read that. Question 42 and 43 about the, the, the death and the day of judgment, what, what is done with the bodies of the wicked and their souls cast into hell. As I've been preaching through Exodus... One of the things that has struck me is that Jesus is the one who saves his people from their sins, which we know that at one level, but we we often think of, you know, it's kind of God in in some general undefined way in the Old Testament. The New Testament tells us in Jude that it is Jesus who saved a people out of Egypt. It is Jesus who afterward destroyed those who do not believe. And when we come... Just listen. I want to read you 3 verses. This is the threatening of the final plague, the death of the firstborn. Exodus 11 verse 4. So Moses said thus says the Lord this is thus says this is what Jesus says. Let's put that in our vernacular. Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. You look over at chapter 12, verse 12. Moses is telling the people what the Lord said For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn. In case it wasn't clear, when, when he goes through the land of Egypt and all the firstborn die, it's because it's at his hand. I will strike. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods, you hear that in quotes, right? All the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. You hear that then in chapter 12, verse 29. So the Lord doesn't just speak in generalities and he doesn't just make a promise. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Hell is the eternal striking down of all those who have not bowed the knee to King Jesus. Hell is the eternal, holy, pure, undefiled wrath of God. Unceasing, conscious, forever. It is personal. You do not just simply, you know, it's not a party. It is for you. This is what the scripture tells us. It's a deserved place. The wages of sin are death, and they always have been. The nature of sin has always merited death. Hell, the scripture describes it like this. It's like Thessalonians 1, as being a day when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. If you go back a verse before that, the scripture tells us God considers this just. That's not how we like to think, is it? That is hard to hear. It's hard to preach, but it's what the Scripture says. It's vengeance because we have despised Him. We've disobeyed His word in our sin. We've disregarded His glory in our pride. It is the absence of God's merciful presence. It is the removal of God's common restraining grace. It is the ongoing experience of God's unmediated wrath forever. So it tells us something about the nature of sin, doesn't it? Because if our sins, if the slightest sin deserves this, then we begin to realize that the nature of even the slightest sin is in unspeakable heinousness, unspeakable rebellion against one so great. Jonathan Edwards said this way, the level of offense rises in direct proportion to the dignity and majesty of the one who is offended. If we can put it this way, brothers and sisters, no one in hell should be anywhere else. No one in hell should be anywhere else. It's a place that Jesus promised. The wages of sin is eternal death. It's a place Jesus prepared. The scripture tells us for the devil and his angels, blackest darkness reserved for them forever. But it is not for Christians. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him does not perish. Do you hear their eternal death? You should. Whoever believes in him does not perish, but has eternal life. You say, well, this kind of talk makes me uncomfortable. I'll remind you that the Lord, if you, if you read through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Lord talks about money and hell more than anything else. He is a holy God. Hell is the sinner's eternity but it is not for Christians I'm so thankful for that we tend to make light of it there was a comic that someone sent me one time it had this guy just thought this was the greatest this is about summed up his theology but this guy's in hell and there's a devil with a pitchfork you know kind of kind of poking him and the man is standing with a cup of coffee he looks at he looks at his friend who's also got a cup of coffee, says, I thought of everything, even the coffee's cold. No. (laughs) Not the point. And yet, how flippantly we think like that, if we're honest, how lightly such things weigh in our daily thoughts. But we end with the final piece of this. And that is heaven. Heaven is the saint's rest. Listen to the scripture again. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is a place, heaven, that Jesus has promised to those who love him. Isn't that what he told the disciples in John 14? I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. Was Thomas said, to me, we don't know where you're going. We don't know how to get there. Who will show us the way? I myself am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You know this. It's a place that Jesus has prepared for us. It's a place that Jesus also prepares us for. You want to know what heaven is like? Look at the description in Hebrews 12. At the end of Hebrews 12, listen to this. Because every week, I I don't think we understand this. Every week when we gather as the people of God whether it be here in Jessup or in Dalton or, or we, we've got a, a Matt and Danielle in Thailand or a, a, a missions uh, church planter that we support in, in Kigali, Rwanda. Every week when we gather as the people of God, this is what's happening. Heaven breaks through. We, we are located here in Georgia, but we are entering eternity. There's a foretaste of the presence of God. Listen to the description. Listen to how he he puts it, because he's talking about the the moment of Sinai when the giving of the law is there. You've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken. In this Hebrews 12, verse 20, they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you've come to Mount Zion. We're not at Sinai anymore. You've come to heaven. You've come to Mount Zion. And the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. To innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The church triumphant. The dead in Christ. We worship Beside them right now. You've come to God, the judge of all. And the spirit of the righteous made perfect. Salvation has been realized. The work of Christ has been finished since the cross, but it's been applied. And you've come to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. He keeps on going and talks about the, the, the consequence, the application of that to our worship being that we, we need to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. There's still a note of holy fear but there's a note of eternal joy. Heaven, brothers and sisters, is the native country of God's people. It is that, not only that He prepares for us, but He prepares us for it. Everything. Some of you are going through incredibly hard times. Some of you have lost so much. Some of you have suffered incredible sins against you. Some of you have been betrayed. Some of you have been abused. You've been abandoned. You've been lied to. A thousand things. We could could fill up the afternoon talking about all the things wrong that have happened to us, couldn't we? And all of the consequences of our own sin. And part in the sovereign providence of God, part of why he brings us through those things is so that we look and we say, here I have no lasting possession." Whom have I in heaven but you, and on earth there's nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Why would I want to stay here? Too much, too often, John Owen said it. The saints are at home in this world and therefore divided amongst ourselves. God sometimes brings incredibly hard things into your life so that you learn to long for Him and for home. Heaven is the native country of the people of God. Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the same power that enables Him to subdue all things to Himself. Second Peter 3, in keeping with his promise, not only we await, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. It's the dwelling place of God. Psalm 2 talks about this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He will, uh, Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm, I think it's Psalm 89. Do I not fill heaven and earth? It's the dwelling place of God, but it's also the dwelling place of God's people. He promises in Exodus 25, I will dwell in their midst. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. You've got kind of a, a picture of Eden Restored. The Lord walked in the cool of the day with His people, and then sin broke that communion, broke that fellowship, separated us from our God, and God gives the promise, even as He's giving the law. I will be with them. I will walk with them. It's fulfilled in Revelation 21, the the same beautiful thing. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They'll be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. We can't even begin to imagine what that's like. Because our hearts are so busy. Our hearts grow so cold. And so it's a present hope. Thus we shall ever be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. That's what he's doing in Hebrews 9. I know we're pulling in all these texts from all over the place, but do you, do you see that's the that's the, the point that he's making in Hebrews 9? Jesus appears a second time, not to deal with sins, but to save his people. To bring us to himself. Everything that he has promised will be realized. It's going to be better than we can imagine. When we, we, we often think about, we, we you know, people, I don't know if you're like me. Again, I told you earlier, I grew up in the country, and so it's like, I'm not throwing. I don't know if you like Southern gospel down here. I'm not throwing rocks if you like Southern gospel. I, I I don't care for it, but that's okay if you do. That's fine. But I say Southern gospel because so often they talk about sing. They sing about walking the streets of gold, and it seems like every song is talking about walking the streets of gold. Do you know why they use that language of streets of gold? Do you know why the scripture uses that? Because it's taking that thing that we look at is as incredibly precious, precious metals, right? Things that, that we, we labor and we strive for. And we, you know, when the market is going crazy and we say, here's security, put it, you know, get, don't, don't worry about stocks, get gold, right? You know, that sort of thing. That's a, Gold and silver, it's always going to be stable. That's what people always say. Scripture uses language like streets of gold to show us that those things that we prize most absolutely pale in comparison to the glory of Christ absolutely pale in comparison to the beauty of Jesus, to everything that he is and everything that he has promised to be for us forever. It's taking the lesser so that we can have some way to begin reasoning to the greater. Does that, does that make sense? I was a teacher. Does, does that make sense? Okay, all right. I want to make sure. I don't want to lose you. So it's not that these things are symbolic or undefined, so much as they almost defy description, Because it's talking about the presence of God with us forever. There, there's consider this: no more sin. I can't get through 30 seconds without struggling with ungodly anger some days. I can't get through 30 seconds driving yesterday without thinking, what's wrong with you people on the road, (laughs) right? There are days that you can't get through five minutes at the office. I was bivocational for the first 10 years of our ministry. I know what it is to go and punch a clock. I know what it is to work in a warehouse. I know what it is to have a boss and have employees and so forth. I've done management. I've done sales. I've done customer. I, I get it. I know what it is to, to work with the, the, the flaming homosexual next to you who hates everything you stood for and who knows it all because he's a pastor's kid. I know what it is to work with the, the, the raging feminist who hates everything that the scripture says. In order to work with the evolutionists and the atheists, and the, I get it. And sin has so permeated us and our thinking; indwelling sin is so present in us that we almost can't define ourselves apart from it. Can we? We tend to think of ourselves in terms of, well, if they only knew, if that ever gets out, boy. And these are shaping things for us. And scripture says that sin will be no more. I can't even comprehend. I, I I I literally you sit there and try to wrap your head around that. I can't even begin to think what that must be like. No more death, no more tears. Sorrow and sighing flee away, no more regrets. No more night. No darkness or sun, because the lamb in her midst is the light. Heaven is the saint's rest. John Flavel, I'm doing my doctoral work on on Flavel. And he said, there is no heaven without Christ. Christ is heaven itself. A heaven without Christ would be worse than hell. Heaven is Christ for us and with us face to face forever. Brothers and sisters, these are the four last things. It's appointed unto men once to die and after that to face the judgment. But Christ will return not to deal with sin, but to bring us to himself. And in this we have hope. Thanks be to God. his indescribable gift. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your precious word. Thank you that it speaks, that you speak by it. Oh, Lord, may we see more of your son. May we know more of your glory. May we be enabled, as our catechism says, more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. May we be quick to point others to Jesus. And may we live not only for the praise of your name, but may we live on you as our life. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. 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 God bless you today. Well, you have heard a very clear um, presentation of the Gospel. And you know, here in modern evangelicalism would be where we would give some long, lengthy invitation for you to come to Christ. We don't do that here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. I will tell you this. God commands a response. Repentance and faith. God commands all mankind everywhere to repent of their sins and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God will hold you accountable for not obeying His command. Please stand with me now and let's sing hymn number 403 in the blue Trinity hymnal 403, Not What My Hands Have Done.